I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Tallahassee, Florida. Tallahassee, called Tally by the locals, has been the state capital of Florida since 1824 and boasts the third tallest capital building in the United States, coming in at 332 feet, with only Baton Rouge, mm-hmm. Louisiana, and Lincoln, Nebraska having taller buildings. It is also a college town home to Florida State University and Florida A&M University, with a student population of over 70,000. It should be no surprise that Tally has the most educated population in the state, with more than half of its residents having a bachelor's degree or higher. It is also a recognized regional center for scientific research and home to the National High Magnetic Laboratory, which performs magnetic field research in physics, biology, bioengineering, and other sciences. Outdoor activities abound in Tallahassee, and many of the residents take advantage of the hiking, cycling, and boating that can be done year-round. There is also a long tradition of hunting waterfowl, like geese and ducks, and there are 20 lakes in and around the city that are open to residents and visitors alike. But in 2000, one of these lakes was the site of a death that led Tallahassee residents to ask, was it an accident or a murder most foul? Really, Kathy? Shakespeare? (laughs) Ducks, foul. Yeah, Yeah, it, it works. Mike Williams grew up in Tallahassee, Florida with his older brother, Nick. His dad, Jerry, drove a Greyhound bus, and his mom, Cheryl, ran a daycare from their home. Mr. and Mrs. Williams wanted their sons to have better opportunities and understand the importance of a good education. So rather than buy a house or build one on the lot they lived on, they lived in a double-wide trailer and spent the money they saved sending Mike and Nick to North Florida Christian School a private school near their home that went from kindergarten through 12th grade. Mike was a standout student in high school. He was the student council president, played varsity football, and was voted best personality in his senior yearbook. He also worked stocking shelves at a local grocery store at night. Not only did his parents want to ensure he understood the value of hard work, but being in high school in the late 1980s in Florida meant he also loved to dress like the detectives on Miami Vice and needed a way to pay for it. What was that guy's name who was on Miami Vice? The main Don one. Johnson. Don Johnson. Oh, my God. Just as a reminder, the guys on Miami Vice were detectives. Were they narcotics detectives? I don't know. I never watched it. I never watched it either. But I do remember the outfits. It was a suit jacket and pants that were white or yeah, they were, colorful, like some exactly. pastel with a different colored T-shirt. And they did like three-quarter length sleeves. They would like they, oh, they they would sho- shove their jackets up. <laughs> yeah, Don Johnson was super iconic with his wardrobe. And shoes without socks. Oh, that's right. That's when that really bad trend began. Exactly. So apparently Mike was into that. (laughs) Mike and Brian Winchester were best friends from an early age, and they did everything together. In the ninth grade, a new student named Denise Merrill transferred to the school, and Mike and Denise became a couple. She was as high-achieving as Mike was. She was student council secretary, a cheerleader, and was a finalist for homecoming queen. She was also voted best dressed in their senior yearbook, which I'm guessing Mike was a little jealous of. Right, Best exactly. personality versus Miami Vice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All that money to waste. <laughs> Around the same time, Mike's best friend, Brian, started dating a girl named Kathy, which is an awesome name, who was also a cheerleader and one of Denise's closest friends. After graduating high school in 1988, Mike and Denise, along with their best friends, Brian and Kathy, went to Florida State University. The two couples led very parallel lives, 
After graduating from FSU, they married in 1994 and had children in 1999. In December 2000, Mike was a successful and respected real estate appraiser, and Denise worked as a certified public accountant. Their daughter Ansley was one year old. Mike worked for Ketchum Appraisal Group and was a Florida Certified General Appraiser. He was also a candidate with the Appraisal Institute for an MAI designation, which in the appraisal industry, it was roughly equivalent to having studied at a doctoral level for commercial real estate appraisal. Saturday, December 16th, 2000, was Mike and Denise's sixth wedding anniversary, and they made plans to spend a romantic night together at the historic Gibson Inn in Apolitical. <laughs> okay, you, you and your fancy French. Wait, Apple, I can actually say this. It's Apalachicola. Apalachicola. Fancy so n- French. None of this baton rouge <laughs> that you've done for two episodes now. <laughs> I do it almost on purpose as a joke because I'm not a stud in French. In fact, when I was a freshman in college, my French one professor told me that she wanted to throw water on my face. But, <laughs> but, but she said it in English so that I could understand. Oh my God. Yeah. Wait, I, you didn't take French in high school, did you? You took Spanish? No, I thought, no. I, you were I, switching it up. It was exactly. I was a fool. I should have stuck with Spanish. And to this day, my mom will say to me, I told you you should have stuck with Spanish. You should have never taken French <laughs> because I got an F in French one and I had to retake it the next semester. How can you, though, pass up the story later on of having your French teacher want to throw water on you? Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Oh, did my she? God. Well, no, she didn't. But honest to God, it was through sheer force of her own will. Because she would get so angry, I fell asleep in class every time. And here's why. I was on the rowing team my freshman year. She was studly. I got back from rowing at like 7.30 in the morning, went to breakfast, and would eat like French toast and pancakes. like Sugaring I, it up. Totally. And so I'd been up for three hours by the time I got to class, and I would have a sugar crash, and I could <laughs> not keep my eyes open. So, yeah, the woman hated me. What You know what I mean? Like, I get it. I yeah. get it. I was. I would have hated you, too. Yeah. Nobody wants a sleeper in their class. No. <laughs> <laughs> Especially, I always sat in the front in all of my classes, too, because I thought it would make me take better notes. But, when you were sleeping? Yeah, exactly. Turns out when you are awake, you can take better notes. But anyway, regardless you of where you sit. You just absorb it through, like, osmosis yeah, or anything? Yeah, no. Oh. That's too bad. We're in Apalachicola. Okay. So Saturday, December 16th, Mike and Denise had six wedding anniversary plans. They planned a night away. Mike also had plans for that morning. He was an experienced outdoorsman, and in the early morning hours of December 16th, he headed out to do some duck hunting at Lake Seminole, which was a reservoir about 60 miles from his home, and that gets its water from the Chattahoochee River. Chattahoochee! (laughs) Apalachicola and Chattahoochee. I don't know which one I like better. That afternoon, Denise called around family and friends looking for Mike. He did not return home from duck hunting, and no one had seen or heard from him. At 3 p.m., Denise's father reported Mike missing to the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. At 6 p.m., a helicopter was requested to aid in the search for Mike, which now included Jackson County Sheriff's deputies. Authorities knew Lake Seminole could be dangerous for boaters. It used to be a peach orchard before it was flooded to create the lake, and tree trunks covered the bottom of the lake along with weeds and debris. The helicopter was delayed until 9 p.m. due to weather, and as Fish and Wildlife Commission officers searched the shoreline on foot, the helicopter searched the lake until midnight. Mike's family and friends were out there searching as well. 
Mike's best friend Brian and Brian's dad were out there on a boat and stayed late using a spotlight to look over the lake. At 2.30 a.m., they made a huge discovery when they found Mike's boat on the western shore of the lake. Unfortunately, Mike was not in it. Mike's brother Nick said all of the duck decoys Mike used were in the boat, which led the search team to realize that Mike never even started hunting that morning. Authorities were now surmising he might have fallen into the lake and drowned. When a body was not found within the first few days, seasoned hunters believed they knew what might have happened. In pre-dawn hours when it is still dark, it is hard to see anything on the lake. They thought Mike probably hit a stump and was thrown into the weed-filled lake. Like most duck hunters, he wore chest-high waders, which could turn deadly when they filled up with water. And there was something even more dangerous lurking below the water, and the reason why I don't ever want to go to Florida, alligators. Exactly. They scare the crap out of me. I agree. My niece and nephew go to school in Florida. Well, now my nephew's graduated. But when he was, I want to say, a sophomore, he sent a video around to the family members showing an alligator. And it was right next to campus. And his friends were screwing around in the water. I could not believe my eyes. It just looked terrifying. Absolutely. The thought of it terrifies me. Exactly. Fish and Wildlife Commission officer David Arnett said if Mike drowned, authorities were confident that they would find Mike's body eventually. It is very unusual for a lake not to give up its dead, and anyone who drowned in Lake Seminole eventually surfaced. They were surprised Mike had not surfaced at this point, but knowing there were a lot of tree stumps and debris on the bottom of the lake, it was very possible that Mike's body had gotten tangled up. After a week without finding Mike, the search and rescue efforts were decreased and continued with four Fish and Wildlife officers in boats, a helicopter, and underwater cameras. During the second week without any new clues, the search was scaled back to one officer and one flight a day. On the 10th day of searching, a fish and wildlife officer found a hunter's hat floating on the surface of the lake. Brian thought it looked familiar and brought a photo to fish and wildlife officers that showed Mike wearing the same hat. Authorities also found his truck and boat trailer in the vicinity of the Lake Seminole boat launch. At the beginning of 2001, the search was scaled back even further with one officer visiting the area every day and air support went in the area. After 44 days of searching for Mike without any results, on February 11, 2001, search efforts were discontinued and a memorial service was held for Mike. It wasn't until six months after Mike disappeared, in June 2001, that the lake gave up some of its secrets. Chest-high waders and Mike's jacket were found floating in the lake. This was proof enough to authorities that Mike was in a boating accident and drowned. Now, Mike's wife, Denise, was a single parent of their daughter, Ansley. And thankfully, she and Mike made sure they both had insurance policies in the tragic event that something happened to one of them while Ansley was growing up. Mike's best friend, Brian, was an insurance broker, so he helped Mike and Denise determine what was best for their family. Brian and his wife, Kathy, remained a steady presence in Denise and Ansley's lives after Mike went missing. And with Brian's insurance expertise, he was able to help Denise navigate the insurance process. Since Mike's body had not been found, in order for Denise to be able to receive insurance money, she had to file an affidavit with the court asking that her husband be declared legally dead. Denise's affidavit was heartbreaking. 
She said Mike had everything going for him and a family who loved him and whom he loved. She detailed their plans for the future, saying they intended to have two more children, had planned a Hawaiian cruise for the spring of 2001, and expected his work to take them to Jamaica later in 2001. Now none of those things would happen. She also said that there was no doubt in her mind that Mike would never leave her or their daughter. She concluded the affidavit by saying, I am totally confident the only reason he did not come home on Saturday, December 16, 2000, is because he died in a tragic accident. Mike's death certificate stated his cause of death was, quote, accidental drowning while duck hunting on Lake Seminole. Body has not yet been recovered, unquote. On June 29, 2001, just six months after Mike went missing, Leon Circuit Court Judge John E. Crusoe declared Mike to be presumed dead. Mike's boss and friend for more than a decade, Clay Ketchum, said Mike was the hardest worker he ever knew and bent over backwards to do whatever was needed to make sure Denise and his daughter were taken care of. Clay was amazed that with the long days Mike put in at the office, he was always home to make sure dinner was ready, laundry was done, and Ansley was given a bath before he put her to bed. Okay, um, when I read this, I thought... Did you call BS? I was like, (laughs) what? Some man puts in a full day of work and then comes and makes dinner and does this and that. And then goes back to the office. Yes, that did not happen in my household. (laughs) (laughs) It still doesn't. (laughs) Although your husband does the laundry. I, I do have to say that he has done 99.9% of the laundry during our entire marriage. But here's the thing. And wait, wait, five kids. Keep that in mind, too. I know. Seven uh, people, uh, laundry. Yeah. Probably because he knows I would have taken it out in the backyard, doused it with gasoline, and lit it on fire. Exactly. But his dad was also a laundry doer. Oh. Yeah. Kids do what they see. They his do. His dad was a laundry doer. Does that mean your sons do it? I don't I'm know. I'm guessing no. I have a feeling they don't. I have a feeling they don't either. <laughs> I'm sure I've let their spouses down. <laughs> All right, where was I? Oh, Clay even gave an example of how thoughtful Mike was. He said, and this blows my mind, that when Mike was at work, if Denise needed gas in her car, she'd call him and tell him that she was at the gas station across from his office and he would run down and go pump her gas. Which I don't know if that's thoughtful or whipped. I know. Exactly. (laughs) On one hand, I'm I'm like, oh, how nice, how thoughtful. And on the other hand, I'm I'm like, what? Come on. Well, it's funny because there was a Dateline NBC episode. I watched The Secrets of Lake Seminole Uh and two of Mike's co-workers were on it. Right. And they were kind of making fun of this. Of course. And they said, you know, anytime we heard him running down the stairs, we looked at each other and said, "Mm, Denise must need gas. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, like most of my heart says, okay, come on, Petunia, you could have pumped your own gas. Exactly. (laughs) Clay Ketchum, Mike's boss, also said Ansley was the love of Mike's life. He would bring her to the office and rock her car seat with his foot while he worked at his desk. Wow. Now that's cute. That's a good dad. Yeah. One year after Mike went missing, Denise asked Clay Ketchum's wife, Patty, to take her out to Lake Seminole. Denise told her she was going to a Christian counselor and they told her to do this to help her heal. Denise went down to the water's edge by herself with a flower and a note she wrote to Mike. Patty said Denise came back 30 to 40 minutes later, and she could tell Denise had been crying. Without a body and no new leads, after a few years, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission handed the case off to the Jackson County Sheriff's Department. 
By this time, Mike's family and friends, as well as law enforcement, were beginning to have doubts that Mike died in a boating accident because they never found the body. Like the commission officer said, the lake always gives up its dead. Exactly. Mike Williams' mother became the squeaky wheel to get authorities to focus on Mike's case. She did not believe the story that an experienced and safety-conscious outdoorsman would have had an accident on that lake. She also did not believe Mike drowned or was eaten by alligators in Lake Seminole. Mrs. Williams first tried to get the police and then the media interested in looking more closely at her son's disappearance. When she did not receive any interest, she dug into her savings and paid $1,200 for an ad in the Tallahassee Democrat newspaper asking the public to help her find her son. Now, Kath, what I read was that this was not a woman of means. Right. She was a widow on a fixed income, I believe. Correct. And this was big money for her, and everything she did that cost money was a big sacrifice. It was her retirement, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Which just shows you also how committed and desperate she was. Totally dedicated, yes. Mrs. Williams did not have the money for a private detective, so she began investigating on her own, cross-checking stories and finding where there were inconsistencies. She made posters and hung them all over the city. And in fact, some of the kids from the daycare center who are now adults remembered on this Dateline episode making missing persons posters while they were at daycare. I love that. (laughs) She's babysitting them and she's like, get out your Crayolas. (laughs) Exactly. We're making some signs. We're making some signs. (laughs) (laughs) She stood on street corners holding up signs and wrote a letter every day to the governor for years, trying to get his attention and ask him to open a case. That's insane. What was the basketball player, Lorenzen? um, Right. Yes, exactly. His mom would have had that same level of determination. Oh, absolutely she did. Yeah, I I can't even think of her name. Ms. Marion? That's right, Ms. Marion. Mrs. Williams also stood outside of churches holding up a sign with her son's picture on it. And, you know, Kath, I thought it was funny. It was very clearly a daycare she was running because... She used a yardstick for the right. <laughs> for the stick to hold the sign up, which was awesome. Probably the same stick she beat those little kids with <laughs> when they got out of line. Bless her heart. <laughs> Mrs. Williams said in the Dateline NBC episode referenced earlier, The Secrets of Lake Seminole, that ministers would get mad she was outside of their church. She said she was getting a reputation around town for being a crazy lady. So I'm not going to say she was a crazy lady, but when I saw her and I watched interviews of her, it did remind me that old age is a second childhood because she was this tiny little lady and she wore pigtails. So she had white hair (laughs) with pigtails. And it's like, you just want to give her a little pinch on the cheeks. It was like she was two. (laughs) Like she had that cute little, like the short little pigtails off the side of it. They were short pigtails. Yeah. 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 Mrs. Williams' ongoing quest for attention to Mike's case led to two confrontations with Denise. The first confrontation in August of 2001 occurred after the local newspaper published an article about missing locals that mentioned Mike. Denise got upset at Mrs. Williams saying she never wanted to hear Mike's name again or see his picture in the paper because she had to get on with her life. Denise told Mrs. Williams that if she persisted in trying to persuade the police, To launch a criminal investigation, Mrs. Williams would not be allowed to see her granddaughter. A family friend was able to help Mrs. Williams speak to top officials with the Florida Division of Law Enforcement. The FDLE is the top law enforcement agency in Florida and has statewide jurisdiction. After reviewing the information Mrs. Williams compiled over the prior four years, 
in 2004, a case file was opened. FDLE agent Will Mickler said that if it was not for Mike's mother's tireless pursuit of finding out what really happened to her son, the case would never have gotten into the hands of investigators. The second confrontation occurred in January of 2005 when Denise told Mrs. Williams that she should believe the authorities' findings. Because basically, Kath, at this point, there was a determination by a court that he was presumed dead. And there were all the indications that led to people believing it was true. Correct. And law enforcement basically kept saying, there's no foul play. There's no evidence of foul play whatsoever. Several years after Mike disappeared, Denise started dating again. But the relationships never turned into anything serious. It was in 2005 that family and friends found out that Denise was in a serious relationship. Her new boyfriend was Brian Winchester, Mike's best friend. By this time, Brian and his wife Kathy were divorced. Almost five years to the day after Mike went missing, Brian and Denise got married on December 3rd, 2005. On December 15, 2006, the Tallahassee Democrat newspaper published the first comprehensive report on Mike Williams' disappearance. And, for the first time, law enforcement publicly stated that Mike's disappearance was considered to be suspicious. Written by journalist Jennifer Portman, the report marked the five-year anniversary since Mike disappeared, with details about how the investigation progressed during that time. When interviewed for the article, Ronnie Austin, a former investigator with the Second Circuit State Attorney's Office who was involved in the case for several years, said since Mike's disappearance was not handled as a criminal investigation, it was hampering cold case investigators who were now taking a closer look. In the report, it stated that Fish and Wildlife officers spent 735 man hours scouring a 10-acre area of Lake Seminole, but they did not spend any time looking for signs of wrongdoing. Jackson County Sheriff's deputies who were brought in to assist in the search did not explore other possibilities either. So by the time law enforcement began privately doubting it was dealing with a straightforward drowning, it was too late. Any evidence of a crime had been trampled by searchers, and any items that might have provided clues, such as Mike's boat or his Ford Bronco and boat trailer, were taken away by friends and family without scrutiny. Potential leads were let go, questions were not asked, and the crime scene was not protected at all. Fish and Wildlife Officer Arnett said there were some things at the scene that morning that seemed odd to him, and then after not finding Mike after a few weeks, those first impressions looked even more out of place. So what he said seemed odd to him was that Mike did not usually hunt alone, his truck was found at an undeveloped landing where he would have had to drag his boat through the mud rather than at a nearby concrete boat ramp he typically used, which... As Makes boaters. no sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no sense whatsoever. Do you imagine your husband killing us if we're like, no, no, just drag it through just the Just drag it through. <laughs> <laughs> we should do that and see what he says. <laughs> I don't know if I'd be able to live to tell the tale. <laughs> In addition, a nasty storm that night should have blown the boat to the eastern shore of the lake, but it was found on the western shore. And its motor was not on, but it had a full tank of gas. If the engine was on and Mike fell out of it, the boat would have kept running in circles until it ran out of gas. So I wonder if at this point they're thinking, okay, the boat was not on, 
but it had a full tank of gas. Right. So what happened? Like, how did he fall overboard with the boat not even being on? Like what? The well, heck? and that's why he's saying those are questions now right. because now that they've actually taken a closer look at the boat, suspecting wrongdoing, mm-hmm. these things aren't making sense. I'm sure nobody thought even twice about looking at it when they first got him because they just assumed that he had fallen overboard and and there was nothing suspicious about it. At that point, Mike was the only hunter or fisherman who had ever gone overboard in Lake Seminole and who was never found. And the waders that were found six months later did not have algae on them, even though they were supposedly in the lake for six months and found in weed-choked water that was 8 to 12 feet deep. In addition, none of Mike's DNA was found anywhere on the waders, and there were no teeth marks from an alligator. The article also reported that the theory that Mike might have been eaten by an alligator was also debunked. Cold case investigators learned from reptile experts that North Florida alligators do not feed between November and March. What this article said was that the water was too cold at this time of year, so adult alligators hibernate during the winter months. Like bears. (laughs) Exactly, like bears, that's true. And their metabolism slows down to the point that they do not want to eat. The experts also said an alligator could not consume a full-grown man without leaving a trace. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Mrs. Williams said Brian and Denise getting married in 2005 confirmed long-standing suspicions she had. Through all of her sleuthing, she kept notebooks about Mike's disappearance that contained pages and pages of her suspicions. It was after hearing about the marriage that she gave her notebooks to FDLE agent Mike Devaney and put together a 27-page summary of her notes to help him. This summary was 27 pages? That's, God, this lady. I, her I mean, life. Oh, totally. Man, this was, this was keeping her going. Yeah. It's like she probably wrote down every instinct and every impulse based on any interaction with anybody that sounded a little eh. And also know? her knowledge of all of these people. I mean, it's a small yep. town and she's known some of them probably from birth. Exactly. One item Mrs. Williams noted was the insurance policies Mike and Denise purchased after the birth of their daughter, and they were worth $1.75 million. It was Brian who sold Mike the largest of those policies, the $1 million policy, six months before Mike disappeared. Mrs. Williams also noted the chest-high waders that were found six months after Mike disappeared, which were used by Denise's lawyer as evidence for the court 
to declare Mike dead so that she could collect the money from the insurance policies. Just over seven years after Mike went missing, in January 2008, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement assumed the lead role in what was now considered a case of foul play. However, authorities needed more than gossip. The Leon County Prosecutor's Office, who worked the case for 10 years, said the information that led them to believe that Brian was involved was cumulative. The fact that Mike's body never floated to the top of the water, the waiters popping up after months with no algae or DNA from Mike, and the large insurance payout were just a few of the examples. FDLE agents kept an eye on both Denise and Brian and bided their time. Authorities knew they would not turn on each other while married. But in November of 2012, authorities learned that after almost seven years of marriage, Brian and Denise separated and Brian moved out. Denise filed for divorce on August 7, 2015, citing irreconcilable differences. But Brian kept trying to stall her from moving forward with it. Almost one year after filing for divorce, Denise was refusing to take Brian's calls. And in response, Brian kidnapped her. As Denise got into her car to go to work, Brian popped up from the back seat, put a gun to her side, and told her to drive. Denise pulled into a shopping center parking lot and managed to talk him down, promising she would not tell the police that he kidnapped her. He finally calmed down and left, and she drove straight to the police station to report the abduction. Hey, Kath, what I read is that he was super agitated and angry that she wasn't returning his calls. So very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he snuck into her car and he had a bottle of water. And as the sun came up, he sprayed water on the interior of the window so it would look like dew and she wouldn't notice him hiding. She would just think like, oh, it's dew on the window. Oh, that's scary sneaky. Super scary sneaky. Denise said Brian was unhinged, which I think Kathy just showed us how, and threatened to take his own life because the marriage was over. Brian also had a sheet and bleach in the back seat with him. Police told Denise that Brian was intending to kill her, which she kept denying when the investigators were talking to her. Mm -hmm. She kept saying that it had nothing to do with her. It was only him trying to kill himself. Right. But the police told her they actually believed Brian was not taking any chances and getting rid of the only person who knew what he did to Mike. Mm. What Denise did not know is that FDLE agent Mike Devaney was in an adjoining room listening to everything she was saying. He did not care about their domestic problems or even what Brian did to her that morning. Agent Devaney wanted to know about Mike's disappearance, what Brian had to do with it, and what Denise knew. When she was at the police station, they put her in an interrogation room, like just a really tiny room. And it was so well handled because she was talking about the abduction and the kidnapping. And I am sure they couldn't believe their lucky eyes that she was actually in a police station talking about Brian. But it was so smooth and so finessed. So there was a detective taking notes on the actual abduction. And then they had a, um, oh, what do you call it? Like in a domestic violence situation, they, they sent an advocate into the room and had her sign papers for a restraining order against Brian. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then they had another detective come in and start massaging the situation about Mike. It was really smooth, really lengthy, really well done. They didn't launch into Mike until probably an hour into her sitting there. And she probably wasn't expecting it. 
So as Kathy just said, Devaney could not believe that Denise was finally being questioned about what happened to Mike. When FDLE agents in the past had asked to talk to Denise and Brian, they were always directed to their attorneys, who of course always declined. After police talked to Denise about the kidnapping, Agent Devaney went into the room, and he asked her a series of questions. Where do you think Mike is buried? She said, I do not know. He asked, do you really believe he died in the lake? She replied, I do. He asked why. Denise said, I just always have. That is what I believe. Denise tried to steer the interview back to her kidnapping and told Agent Devaney she was not comfortable talking about Mike right now. She kept saying things like, I just need to process this first. Devaney kept pushing and told her if she did not talk, he might get the story from someone else. Devaney told her he would much rather get it from her than from Brian, because when Brian was arrested, he was going to talk to Brian too. A few days later, Brian was arrested for armed kidnapping and faced life in prison if convicted. He pleaded not guilty. Denise spoke at his arraignment and begged the judge to keep Brian in jail. She was afraid that he would kill her or harm Mike and Denise's daughter Ansley, who was 18 years old. The judge agreed to deny bail. A lot of times, as you know, at preliminary hearings, they they talk about what would be a suitable bail. And I think it's interesting that she addressed the court rather than having the prosecutor address the court. So is that typically not what happens? Is that the victim can't do it? I mean, in my well, no, I just it's, it's yeah. <laughs> It's unusual. Usually the prosecutor says, you know, they're a flight risk or this or that. This is a domestic violence situation. And, you know, people, maybe they thought she was more sympathetic or maybe she just felt like the prosecutor wasn't going to beg hard enough. Anyway, one year later, Brian changed his plea to no contest for the kidnapping. On December 19th, 2017, despite Denise's pleading with the judge to give Brian a life sentence, Brian instead was sentenced to 20 years in prison with 15 years probation for an armed kidnapping of Denise as part of a plea deal. The very next day after Brian's sentencing, the FDLE made a major announcement. Mark Perez, FDLE's special agent in charge, revealed that earlier that day, agents found a skeletal body in a shallow grave. The remains were confirmed through DNA to be Mike Williams. He was not found in Lake Seminole, but back in Tallahassee off a dead-end road by a swampy lake five miles from the house in which he grew up. The FDLE would not say how the body was found, but speculation quickly focused on Brian being the one to lead them to it. The discovery of Mike's body gave investigators the first piece of physical evidence as to what happened to Mike and with this new information, FDLE agents continued their investigation. Five months later, in May 2018, Denise Williams Winchester was indicted by a Leon County grand jury for first-degree murder of her husband. Shortly after the indictment was handed down, Denise was arrested at the Florida State University Controller's Office where she worked. It was her daughter's 19th birthday. Which is so sad. This little girl has been through enough. Oh, my God. She Talk about being scarred. But you know what I also find to be very interesting? Hmm. The insurance policies paid them $2 million. Ish, like a little under. Well, yeah. Denise was working. Oh. I just thought that was strange. Because she didn't have to. She didn't have to. That's true. I hadn't really thought about that. Especially raising a daughter. 
I would be living la vida loca, baby. I, <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be working for the man. I, well, you're working as a CPA for a controller's office at a state public university. Yeah. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of work. Are we lazy? <laughs> although, although you know what? Yeah, maybe we are lazy, but her daughter's of college age. You know, maybe it was something for her to do. You know, I personally would be gardening. I'd be sipping Prosecco by the pool. Denise pleaded not guilty. Shockingly, Denise was the only one charged with Mike's murder. In the Dateline episode previously referenced, prosecutors admitted they made a deal with the devil. Their priority was finding Mike's body to bring him home to his family. According to Brian's attorney, the plea deal Brian made with prosecutors was in exchange for the location of Mike's body and did not include a requirement to tell police about Denise's role in the murder or compel him to testify against her at trial. This was the deal that resulted in Brian being sentenced to 20 years for kidnapping Denise, but granted him immunity from prosecution for Mike's murder. Almost 18 years after Mike disappeared and one year after Mike was confirmed to have been murdered, Denise went on trial for first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, and accessory after the fact of first-degree murder. Leon Circuit Judge James E. Hankinson was presiding. FDLE agents, Fish and Wildlife officers, and Mike's mother were among the first witnesses called to testify. And the jury met Brian Winchester's first wife, Kathy. Kathy eventually started working as a confidential source for police and recorded phone conversations she had with Denise. In one conversation, Kathy pretended that Brian told her that, quote, y'all planned it, and that Brian's father told Kathy to take that secret to the grave. Denise never refuted Kathy's allegations and seemed more concerned about what Brian may have divulged to police. Kathy also testified that she believed Denise tried to involve her in a cover-up after Brian's arrest. About one week after Brian was arrested for the kidnapping, Denise called Kathy and asked her to tell Brian's father to get a message to him to tell him that Denise was not talking. But all of those witnesses were just framing the betrayal that would be revealed by the state's star witness, Brian Winchester. His testimony told the story of a wife betraying her husband and Brian betraying his best friend. In the Dateline episode, prosecutors John Fuchs and Andy Rogers were asked if they were afraid the jury was going to hate Brian for what he did. They said they knew the jury was going to hate him. They hated him but it did not mean his story was not the truth. Their fear was that if the jury did not believe him, Denise would walk. Brian's testimony was the stuff from which many murder mysteries are created. He said he and Denise were secretly having an affair for three years before Mike was murdered. They were connected like neither had ever been with anyone else, and the longer they were together, the more they wanted to be together all of the time and out in the open. Denise told him that as a devout Christian, she did not want the stigma of being divorced, nor did she want to be forced to share custody of their daughter. I hate to let Denise know, but she's not a devout Christian. (laughs) (laughs) She's going to be devastated when she hears that, (laughs) Kath. Plus, as a widow, she would be entitled to the almost $2 million in insurance money. Brian testified that he and Denise started planning how they should kill Mike about a year before it was carried out. According to court documents, Brian explained that he planned to fake an accident in which both Mike and he would fall into the water, but he would be the only survivor. 
Brian asserted that Denise liked this particular idea because Mike's survival would then be up to God and she could feel better about herself if it were more like an accident and less like murder. For their plan to work, the trip had to occur during duck hunting season and before one of Mike's life insurance policies lapsed. Denise also wanted the duck hunting trip to happen soon so she would not have to go on the anniversary trip with Mike. Who doesn't want to go to Apalachicola? Exactly. On the Chattahoochee. Right. Apalachicola, by the way, is my new favorite city. Apalachicola. Apalachicola. So despite what Denise told authorities, Mike did not go duck hunting alone that early Saturday morning. Brian was with him. The week prior, Brian told Mike that he knew a secret hunting spot and that Mike would need to bring his waders. They met at a parking lot and drove separate cars to Lake Seminole. Normally, Brian and Mike would have talked on the phone during the drive out there, but Brian told Mike that his cell phone battery was dead. Brian was concerned that if Mike called his cell phone, the police would later be able to figure out from his records that Brian was with Mike that morning. And he was also concerned, obviously, about the phone's pinging. So essentially, Brian turned off his cell phone so that his location was off. Since the plan was to make it look like Mike drowned in a boating accident, Brian and Denise decided that the murder weapon would be Mike's chest-high waders. Once in the boat, Brian told Mike to go to the deepest area of the lake, and once they arrived at the spot, he told Mike to stand up. When he did, Brian pushed his best friend into the water. Brian hoped that after he pushed Mike into the lake, Mike's waders would fill up with water and he would be unable to keep himself above the water, causing him to drown. Can you imagine watching someone drown? It's unfathomable. This isn't someone. This is his best friend since From he was yet six, six years, years old. old. 25 years. I mean, honestly, I'm kind of afraid to go on the boat with you this summer. <laughs> <laughs> you better mind your P's and Q's, Missy. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, yes. the confusion, the, just, the just betrayal. Like, what, it's, it's unfathomable. Yeah. Totally. And it gets worse. Yeah. So Mike's struggling after he fell into the water. Brian drives the boat a short distance away so that Mike could not reach the boat. And Mike was wiggling around, wiggling around. So Brian thought he was trying to swim. And it turns out Mike was able to get out of the jacket and his waders. Boy Scout. So, yeah, exactly. Seriously. So he swims to a tree stump and holds on. Mm. What does Brian do? Because now he has to change plans, of course, because his buddy's not drowning. Well, and I believe he was holding onto the tree stump and yelling for help. Yes, exactly. So Brian brings the boat back and he does circles. So he's panicking now. Mike's in the water. Mike's probably going, what the heck is going on? He's yelling for help. He's yelling for help. Exactly. Brian does a tight circle around him a couple times and then shoots him in the head with a 12-gauge shotgun. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, this is your best friend since age six. I had a really hard time reading this, to be honest with you. I mean, I know we do true crime. I know that a lot of this is horrific. And, you know, for as many horrible people there are, we still see all the wonderful people that are there as well. But the betrayal involved in this, for what? It's so, yeah, for what? I don't understand it. Yeah, no, totally unfathomable. Brian testified that he then grabbed Mike's body and pulled it alongside the boat as he drove back to shore. Once he was on shore, he pushed the boat back out so it would drift and make it look like Mike drowned. This was not part of the plan. He thought his buddy was going to drown. Right. But now he shot him in the head. So So this is all improvised. It's all improvised. So what he does is he drags his friend's body to the shore, 
but he doesn't pull them up on the shore. He puts them in like three to four feet of water and he just lets them sit there because he went and got his truck and pulled it back. But he was afraid that some fishermen might walk by or somebody might see him. So he allows Mike's body to sort of like sink into the shallows. He doesn't pull them up on the ground. Then he puts them in the back of his truck. And in the back of his truck, he has this dog crate. Because he had not planned on shooting Mike and Mike is bleeding all over the place, he takes Mike's body, puts it in the back of the truck, and stuffs the upper half of his body into the plastic dog crate so that it could catch the blood and prevent there from being such a big mess all over his truck. It's awful. Yep. After he stuffed his friend into the dog crate, he then went home and got into bed with his wife to establish an alibi. Mm-hmm. He later drove to an isolated area with a dead-end road where he buried Mike's body. He also testified that in order to ensure alibis, Denise was not there for any of it, nor was she on the phone with Brian while he murdered Mike or buried the body, so they would not be able to be connected during the crime. Denise's participation was to come up with an alibi for herself and make sure Mike went hunting with Brian that morning. Brian said that Denise has an ability to get people to do things for her so she can minimize her guilt or conscience. She wanted the murder to be all on him and not on her so she could keep a scenario in her mind that it was not a murder, but rather an accident. So one of the things during their marriage, so they were married, what, seven years or something uh-huh. like that? So, but had been together that whole time after Mike went missing, so technically it's now 12. True. So Brian, on a number of occasions, tried telling Denise what happened. I am assuming it was just too great a burden for him to hold in, but I mean, you know, whatever. Anyway, she was like, absolutely not. I don't want to know. And she would not allow him to tell her what happened. She did not want to know. And one of the things she said to him was, we just need to ask forgiveness from God and we're okay. Like, we don't need to confess this crime. We just need to ask God for forgiveness and it's fine. Her whole big thing was, I don't want to know the details. And we're I'm a just, devout Christian. We're just going to ask God to forgive us and that's good enough. And look where that delusion got her. Right. Brian also spoke about Denise's concern that she would not be able to get the money from Mike's insurance policies without a body. The investigators' instincts about the waiters they found six months after Mike went missing were correct. They were staged. Brian put the waiters in the water during one of his searches to confirm Mike drowned. Brian said for the next 16 years, he and Denise kept a mafia-like oath of silence. His testimony was emotional and the prosecutors said the jurors were on the edge of their seats. When Denise's attorney, Ethan Way, cross-examined Brian, he told Brian his testimony was an award-winning performance and he was clearly a well-trained liar. He was also the only killer, and his goal was simply to save himself. The plea deal Brian reached with the prosecutors meant he was not charged with murder and was only sentenced to 20 years for kidnapping Denise. Brian admitted he was desperate to do anything he could to avoid prosecution and that his desperation included having discussions with one jail inmate who offered to kill Denise and several others who offered to lie in his kidnapping case. Brian testified that he told the inmate who offered to kill Denise to never speak to him again. He said he was not willing to kill to get out of the charges, but he was willing to have the other inmates lie for him. Did you figure out what specifically these lies were? They were going to lie about where he was, because remember, it was only Denise's word. They were going to provide some type of some alibi. Some type of alibi okay. for him. So he really didn't kidnap her because he was right. whatever. Right, she's making it up. We it were gambling in Vegas or whatever. Right, exactly. Okay. 
Authorities learned about the conversations and brought new charges against him for witness tampering. It was at this point that Brian agreed to a deal with the prosecutors. The defense also told Brian that in admitting to Mike's murder, it also allowed him to exact an element of revenge against Denise. If Denise had anything to do with Mike's murder, though, why would she turn Brian in for the kidnapping knowing he could tell police that she was involved? He also got Brian to again confirm earlier testimony that he and he alone pulled the trigger. The defense attorney asked, Mr. Winchester, you are a murderer, isn't it true? Yes, sir. Mr. Winchester, you are a liar, isn't it true? Yes, sir. In his closing arguments, Denise's attorney said if you excluded Brian's testimony, you are left with no forensics or evidence tying Denise to Mike's murder. During the prosecution's closing arguments, John Fuchs pointed to Denise. He reminded the jury that Denise sat stoically at the defense table as Brian told the court in great detail how he killed the man she supposedly loved and cherished. Denise was absolutely stone-faced and did not bat an eye or shed a single tear. On December 14, 2018, after eight hours of deliberation, the jury unanimously found her guilty on all counts. It was two days before the 18th anniversary of Mike's death. Okay, so two things about this. One, she did not show any emotion when she was found guilty for any of those charges. The other thing is FDLE agent Devaney, who had been working with Mrs. Williams. Right. She was in a wheelchair at this point. And he was leaned over, clutching her hand so tightly as the verdicts were read. Kath, when I saw that, I originally thought that that was her son. Oh. I thought it was Mike's brother. I didn't realize it was the agent. The but, brother was actually standing behind Mrs. Williams with his hand on her shoulder. So when, when I found out it was the agent, I just, I was like, oh, what a good guy. He looked really upset and emotional about it, too. Oh, he was and totally sure was trying to behalf. hold back tears. Right. Totally trying to hold back tears. It, it was very, very nice. But he was so supportive. Like this little old lady in a wheelchair with white hair and pigtails, you know, she was just doggedly determined. Mrs. Williams said as the details surrounding her son's death emerged in court, her only consolation was that Mike did not feel anything and he died immediately. Mrs. Williams and Mike's brother Nick were finally able to bury Mike on September 8, 2018. Mrs. Williams insisted, and I love this, that Mike's headstone included the fact that he was murdered. Under his name, it says, Loving father, loving son, loving brother. Below that, it says, Born October 16th, 1969. Murdered December 16th, 2000. Buried September 8th, 2018. She said, in 100 years from now, when somebody is in this cemetery, it might make them go back and look and wonder what happened to him. I just feel really sad that my son did not get to live his life. Almost two months after Denise was convicted, she received the mandatory sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole for her role as a principal to first-degree murder. She received an additional 30 years in prison for conspiring to kill her husband. After the jury returned guilty verdicts on the first two charges, the trial court dismissed the accessory after the fact charge. Denise appealed the trial court's decision, arguing there was insufficient evidence to support her convictions. 
She also contended she was entitled to a new trial because the judge refused to compel the prosecution to elect which charge to put to the jury, first-degree murder or accessory after the fact to murder. The Court of Appeal found that there was not any evidence presented at trial that demonstrated Denise counseled, hired, or procured Brian to murder Mike, as well as no evidence that showed she was initiating it, promoting it, or the encouraging force behind the murder, or that she enlisted Brian to commit the murder or stage manage him, as the court document said, as he executed the plan. So, Kath, with murder charges, there's things called principles, like principle in the first degree, principle in the second degree, that kind of thing. And in Florida, I mean, many places, but the principle in the first degree is pretty much the person who did the killing. And you could be convicted of a murder charge if you're also the principal in the second degree. And the principal in the second degree typically involves being at the scene. Which she wasn't either. Yeah, exactly. At the scene and aiding and abetting in its commission, which she wasn't. So anyway, go ahead. So hence the Court of Appeal ruling. Yeah, exactly. The Court of Appeal ruled that there was insufficient proof that Denise acted as a principal to first-degree murder, and they reversed her first-degree murder conviction. Denise also contended that the evidence did not sustain her conviction for conspiracy to commit murder. The Court of Appeal disagreed, saying a conspiracy exists where there is an express or implied agreement to commit a criminal offense and an intention to commit the offense. The Court of Appeal also found that the evidence did show that Denise and Brian had an agreement to kill Mike and that Denise intended for Brian to kill Mike. As a result of the court's ruling, Denise was given another sentencing hearing on the conspiracy charge and was again sentenced to 30 years in prison without the possibility of parole. Don't you love that? I do. Denise Williams is currently incarcerated at the Florida Women's Reception Center in Ocala, Florida, and is scheduled to be released on April 25th, 2047, when she will be 77 years old. There is a consensus among law enforcement that justice would not have been served in this case but for the tireless efforts of Mike's mother, Mrs. Williams, during the 17 long years from the date Mike went missing to the date they were able to bring him home. My son's horrific death demands justice, said Mrs. Williams. With today's sentencing of Denise Merrill Williams Winchester, I believe that justice will have been served. Thank you so much for listening. We really enjoy all of the stories, doing do. the research, finding out mm -hmm. all the details. And several of our listeners, of course, have sent us suggestions. Yes, we love that. We do. We absolutely love it. If you have any that you're interested in, it happened in your hometown, yep. you've heard of it. Let us know. And if you're not following us, we are at Killer Destinations Podcast on Instagram and Facebook.